we are looking at all of the competing priorities. This week, it's basically all about the budget. We'll tell you about the big items competing for your dollars and where we might be finding savings. As well, we'll update you on some of the good, mediocre, and Cartmel-level ideas counselors are putting forward. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 14, and the budget's coming up. I'll give you a brief note. Uh, Mac, he's away. Uh, He was at a conference this week, so this is our first remote session. So if he sounds real tinny and less pleasurable well that's entirely his fault and all complaints should be emailed to him blame me blame blame the mountains the mountains they're horrible but what's not horrible is our rapid fire segment the crowd favorite this week the slash r slash edmonton subreddit in one sudden motion suddenly became a civil utopia of high quality discussion the sudden change in the level of discourse prompted some investigation into why the sudden improvement even happened Uh, All signs point to my appointment as the moderator as the cause. The entire LRT network is going down for signal testing this Saturday in what the city promises is the last time Thales will bring down service to test their signaling system. There's no real joke here. You can use the bus replacement or you can just go back to cars, as apparently more and more frustrated Edmontonians are. Elise Stolte wrote a column this week outlining the frustration ETS riders have been experiencing in her 10th column for the Edmonton Journal. Remember when Paula Simons left and we had David Staples as the only columnist covering city issues? Yeah, we try to forget that as well. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This week, we're going to tell you about the Well Endowed Podcast, which is a production of the Edmonton Community Foundation. We've mentioned this on the show before. If you're new to it, it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Community Foundation itself obviously helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. New episodes generally come out monthly. You can read the show notes and subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. So, Mac, this week, um, something seemed to have happened. Uh, I think we're talking about the operating budget this week. Uh, That seemed to be on a lot of counselors and the media's and everyone's mind. So what's... What are the big items that we need to hit on? So the operating budget was released. Council got its first look at it. This is to go along with the capital budget, which we mentioned in a previous episode. For the operating budget, what we're looking at is a tax increase of 3.3% next year, 2.7% in 2020, and then 2% in each of 2021 and 2022. Uh, These increases, the city says, are the result of identified pressures in the existing budget and costs associated with the growth in services as well as there's a whole bunch of stuff that was previously approved by council. I'm sure we'll get more into the numbers, but just to mention, out of that percentage that I I just highlighted, there are three dedicated increases that have already been approved or or, uh, assigned, essentially, maybe not approved. So the Valley Line South LRT is one of those. That will increase taxes by 0.6% next year. Alley renewal is something that councils previously dedicated an increase to, so that's 0.3% next year. And as we mentioned in the last episode, there's now a policy on how we fund increases to the police budget. And so that's 1.7 of that 3.3% dedicated to the police in 2019. The point where we need to start with all these numbers is the program and service review, because that was council's goal, you know, a couple of years ago when this started. Essentially, we wanted to look at every city department. We wanted to understand what the city currently offers as services, what we can 
potentially trim and what we can consolidate to save some money. And we got a report back on the program in Service Review. We did. And we've talked about this before. Um, the last update that we had, the numbers were mm, pretty abysmal. They had maybe found a few hundred thousand dollars or something like that in, in savings. But this new update that Council got this week says that 2018 was a great year and they've found now 24.7 million in additional savings or cost avoidances, which brings the total value of savings identified by the program and service review to 27.1 million. So that's not a tiny number, but it's it's not massive either. Really, they didn't have to, you know, mention the second total. Basically, the 24.7 million they found this year is all the savings the program has ever found. Basically. One of the interesting things about the program and service review is that it's funded through those savings. So we don't spend any other money except what we're able to find in savings. So they, they estimate the total cost has been of that 27, 2.3 million is what it's cost us to identify all of that. <sighs> You, I guess you have to spend money to save money, but what I'd really like to break down is what exactly were those $24.7 million in savings and how exactly were they found? Because like we said earlier, you know, they found a couple hundred thousand here and there. Sometimes when a program is operating very efficiently, it's very difficult to find savings. Sometimes when, you know, it's just a program that, duplicates work from another city department and you discover that, well, that's easy to quickly make the cut. And it makes me wonder how much of the program and service review is actually necessary here and how much just like a, asking the frontline workers, hey, how do we save some money? I don't know. I'm As someone who's worked in public service before, I'm always skeptical when management tries to identify cost savings. I think generally you ask any frontline worker and they will tell you exactly how to save money. They know where the waste is, absolutely. Um, we're going to get a little bit more into some alternatives to the program and service review that could have saved some money. But to answer your question, there's three categories that uh, city administration has put their savings into. There's one-time expenditures, so things that they would have spent one time that they don't need to anymore. Um, ongoing savings, these are things that they would have to pay every single year and they found a way to reduce that. And then cost avoidance, so things that they would have incurred had they not done this review and now they've been able to avoid those costs. So they've completed, I uh, can't remember the exact number, something like 60 or 80 service reviews. There's a lot more still to do. What was really interesting to me is if you look in the report, there's an attachment that has all of the different service reviews that they have completed. And there's a bunch that say in progress. There's some that say fully implemented. The city's already gone ahead and you know made those changes. There's some that are currently implemented. And then there were three that stuck out that got some, well, maybe more than three. There's a handful here that stuck out that got some attention this week that say requires council approval or direction. And that was to either replace, repurpose, or close the Oliver Outdoor Pool, the East Glen Leisure Center, and Skona Pool. Yeah. Um, while you were talking about cost avoidance, that was the one going through my head. What was city administration thinking is the only response I can have to this item. Uh, so I'm in the south side, so I've been involved with the Central Area Council of Community Leagues, or CACL, as they're more affectionately known. So part of that, one of the offshoot committees of CACL was the Friends of Scona Rec, which is the committee all designed to saving the Scona Rec Center, advocating for a new sort of community facility that's walkable and bikeable where the Scona Pool is. So like I've long since listened to the plight of 
the Friends of Scone Rec, and I've seen counselors say, oh, you know, this is a really good community facility that we need to maintain. And yet, when we're talking about spending $300 million on a suburban mega rec center in Lewis Farms, we're talking about closing these dense core neighborhood pools. And how much was the actual savings um, proposed for these pools? So to the savings identified were about $0.2 million to $200,000 for the Oliver Pool, $900,000 for the East Glen Leisure Centre, as well as almost half a million of uh, cost avoidance, and 300000 for the Scona Pool. So call it like a million and a half all in. Yeah, $1.5 million, which I mean, yeah, $1 million is a lot of money, except in the context of a city budget, it's really not a lot of money. And it's especially not a lot of money when you consider that these are community recreation facilities in areas that are like highly densifying, like Oliver's the densest neighborhood in Edmonton, right. I believe, yes. or close to it. Yeah. Uh, Scona is is right by Queen Alex, which it's a mature neighborhood, but it is heavily densifying. A lot of apartments are building there. It is baffling to me that we would be closing community recreation facilities that are already in these neighborhoods where we want to encourage infill and it'd be one thing if we were saving any amount of money but 1.5 million dollars is literally nothing we spent more than that to look at the services we offer it's a lot like schools right when we had the debate a few years ago about closing inner city schools because they didn't have the kids you know that's the reason they cite for the oliver pool they say from 2010 they had 22,000 visitors, and then in 2016, it dropped to just 8,000. Same with Skona Pool. In 2010, they had 87,000 visitors, and then it dropped to 28,000 in 2016. But it kind of speaks to the, the question of what kind of city we want to build. If we close these facilities and we only build suburban mega rec centers, of course attendance is going to go down here and go up in other places because that's the only option that we have. And as you say, if we're trying to encourage people to move back into these neighborhoods to um, you know, have infill development in these neighborhoods, you need the amenities to go along with that, right? You can't assume that people are going to start to make these neighborhoods more dense and then get in their cars and drive all the way to the edge of the city to go to the mega rec center. It doesn't make any sense. Policy says one thing and council's actions and budgets say absolutely another. And there was another instance of policy and our city plans and maybe council's ideas sort of diverging uh, a little bit. Cartmel, uh, Councillor Cartmel, uh, Councillor for Ward 9, he had um, quite the interesting Facebook post uh, posted Wednesday. So I was, uh, you know, I've been on uh, in the mountains here at a conference. And so I was just kind of scanning Twitter, trying to keep up to date on what's going on. And I saw people talking about Councillor Cartmel proposing that we delay building the Valley Line. And then I scanned the post and read the article that was written about it. And, it, you know, if I understand correctly, he's basically saying we're about to get into a provincial election. If the UCP get elected, they've promised to scrap the carbon tax, which is apparently where, you know, the billion dollars that was recently um, announced by the province for the West LRT is coming from. Therefore, we're not going to have the funding potentially to go and do this. It's a really bizarre, logical direction to take. I mean, by that logic, we shouldn't fund anything that depends on provincial funding because it could dry up tomorrow. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me why you would walk back a funding decision that the province has already announced. Very bizarre. Yeah, 
And it, it's one thing, for example, if the province was saying, look, we as the NDP government have committed this money, but, you know, if we lose power, we might this funding might dry up. It's one thing for the provincial government to walk back their own funding right. decision and urge caution. It's another thing entirely for the city to say, you know, thanks for this funding commitment, but we don't believe you. Like, that's a bizarre way to handle infrastructure money. My read of this situation and like, and that's the thing on the surface, this almost sounds like a reasonable course of logic. The Valley Line West is going to be a hugely expensive project. If provincial funding dries up after we already have shovels in the ground, then, you know, we might be on the hook for building it and we won't get to build other projects. Except what kind of provincial government would actively revoke a funding commitment while shovels are in the ground and like people are already being paid to build it? Like, I don't think that's a politically palatable thing to do. Right. It's really hard to make a decision like this go backwards, as you say. I, I, you know, I can't see that either. And it's not just the province that has already started to make things happen. The, the folks along the line, some of the businesses that are impacted, developers that are potentially you know, going to go and build things, you know, things are in motion on this project already, even though there's maybe no shovels in the ground as yet to, to build the track itself. Things are happening. Yeah, this post, it was acknowledging the politics of Kenny's being ahead in the polls and his potential to winning. I think this entire Facebook post, it's political pandering because Cartmel has to know that no, there's no support on city council for delaying Valley Line West. Like that's just right. not a thing that any city councilor will support. I think, and we saw this previously when Councilor Cartmel made the comments of, you know, why is the Valley Line West a done deal guaranteed and we have to debate Terwilliger Drive? I think from his perspective here, he wants Terwilliger Drive and he wants to show his constituents that he wants to build Terwilliger Drive at any cost. And if the cost is not building LRT, he's cool with that. Um, that's that's my read of the situation, which this is essentially a nothing post and it won't have any traction at council whatsoever. But it's virtue signaling for people in his ward that, you know, I hear you. You want Terwilliger Drive, not some LRT. But the impact of that is potentially really bad for his constituents, right? Essentially what he's signaled now to the rest of council is that he doesn't think that city council is a team sport when it absolutely is. And as you say, there's no other appetite on council to walk back or to avoid doing LRT. Like that's the committed direction that council has voted on time and time again. For him to suggest that, no, we shouldn't do that because his constituents want something in his ward only is a bit strange and he might find it difficult in the future to get support for other things from the other councillors um, if he's so willing to stick his neck out and go it alone and, and not treat it as the team sport that it is. I mean, you need seven votes to make something happen. You're not going to win any of those if you um, go around talking only about your your ward. When you get elected, you represent Edmontonians. You do represent your constituents, but you also represent Edmontonians at large. Speaking of council being a team sport, in the past I've lamented that John D for Ward 3 hasn't been the best team player on council. He hasn't been jiving with council's vision and really supporting some of the motions his colleagues have making. Right. This week, however, the free transit motion came back. Uh, that's Aaron Paquette's motion to 
not just explore free transit, but broadly explore the cost benefit analysis of transit as a whole and what sort of economic benefit the city derives from having transit and, you know, what role fares play in that discussion and whether they should be free. So that motion came back and what I thought was really interesting in the discussion was when the motion was on the floor and counselors were speaking to it, John D came up and like listening to the live stream, I braced myself because he's been signaling to his constituents that he doesn't want a tax increase. So, you know, he's the fiscal conservative from Ward 3. So I was bracing for him to attack and eviscerate the motion. But in fact, he said, I'm roughly quoting, I can see that my colleague is very passionate about this issue and he's put a lot of effort into this. So, you know, I just want to support this motion to get this information because clearly this is very important to my colleague and I think we should support that. Wow. Talk about a team player. <laughs> exactly. It was quite the team play from John D. So we had some pretty broad support on council for this free transit motion. I won't speak too much about it, but there was a couple interesting things that happened here. Clearly, there had been some discussion behind the scenes about this motion because at one point, um, it was Councillor Cartmel, in fact, he made a motion to refer this uh, free transit discussion back to administration and have administration come back in January with a sort of set of terms for the discussion. So in January, administration would come back and say, this is the exact amount of work we would need to do to complete this research you're asking us to do. And then, you know, it would roughly have the cost of that scope of work. And fine, that was a motion. Uh, and you could sort of tell, like, there wasn't a lot of desire for that motion in the room. And Knack actually verbalized it. He was the seconder for this motion. And he said, second for democracy, as if, and like there was a couple chuckles from the room, as if everyone knew that this referral motion was going to fail. Right. And then it passed. Um, and it was, it was a narrow vote. It passed um, just, just barely. I think something went wrong uh, on the advocacy side of the free transit motion because clearly Knack was pretty sure this motion was going to fail and then it ended up passing. So, the result of that is we're going to hear more about free transit in January when the scope of work comes back from administration. And then maybe this research can finally get off the ground and start. But from what we heard on council, there's a lot of support for really exploring transit's role in our economy and city building. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, as you said in a previous episode, it's not to make transit free. It's just to get the information so that we can have an informed discussion about where we want to put our priorities. I will say, though, since we've been talking about budget and looking for opportunities to save money, this trend of administration and council going back and forth to get a cost of how much it's going to cost to do something seems a little ridiculous. I mean, we saw this with the gondola, too. It's like, we're not going to talk about the gondola until we get the data and the information on it, but we're not going to do that until we know how much it's going to cost us to get the information on the report. It's like, why can't we just go forward and get the information? Wouldn't we save a bunch of money in the process? Uh, maybe if our staff were doing the reports, we might save some money by just getting it. But it turns out it's not just city staff, of which there's 15,000 or so staff. We also have a pretty big consultant budget, don't we? We do. So the city is about 14,500. 
employees, this operating budget for 2019 to 2022 would add another 750 employees to that. I think it was Councillor Walters this week said he wanted more information before you know, we did that. We wanted to make sure that these hires were actually needed. At the same time, though, the audit committee received a report from the city auditor on the review of consulting services. And I'm sure you've heard about this already. It was big news. Essentially, what happened here is the city spent about $616 million on consulting services from 2013 to 2017. And on top of that, $245 million of it was miscoded, which means it wasn't actually reported correctly in the city's consulting expenses. Uh, the auditor went on to say that the frequent use of change orders, this is where you come to an agreement on a price and a contract with a consultant, and then you have to change it and increase costs again later, uh, increased costs 72% from their initial values, um, and wants to make sure that there's training in place for administration so that they can code these things incorrectly, have them accounted for in the financial system properly, and also reduce the number of change orders that they see. Those are the two recommendations that came forward from the city auditor, to which administration said, yes, we agree, we will do those two things. Seems a little too easy to me. Like, not to be undersold, but $616 million on consulting services, granted over a four to five year period, but our entire operating budget is just over $2 billion. This is a city with, like we said, 15, 14 and a half, 15,000 employees, and we can't find the staff time to do the work we need, and we need to spend an extra, you know, like almost 5 to 8% of our budget on consultants. It's baffling to me. Definitely. I mean, I can understand there are some very specific you know, skill sets and things like that, that maybe we do need to go and get some consultants for, you know, some of the engineering reviews that we need to have done, or if we need to have, you know, a third party or a fresh set of eyes, like that all makes sense to me. But 616 million is a lot of money, as you say. Uh, it seems like there's not a lot of oversight into who these consultants are and which parts of the city are, you know, using consultants most heavily and if that's appropriate. I mean, one of the things I thought is like the, the city auditor's budget that they propose for the next four years is about $2.7 million a year. We spent almost that much on the program and service review and they found what, 20 times as much money? Like maybe we should have just hired the city auditor to go and find us some uh, program and service review options. Like they obviously did a much better job here. And this isn't the first time our city auditor has uncovered massive things. Our city auditor, he found like winter sand recycling. We were actually losing money when the city was reporting we were saving money. The city auditor has been doing some great work with, again, you said like less money than the service review was this year. The other thing I'll mention, I had talked about this consulting services item with a friend who I won't say which firm she worked for, but she worked for a consulting firm. And she laughed and said, yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, when consultants aren't at their billables for the month, they just uh, find a city contract to jump on and hope for a change order. And just like how casually she mentioned that as just like the going practice of consulting firms. I think this is an endemic and systemic problem at the city of Edmonton that probably warrants a pretty critical fix. Because again, $616 million, we're talking about closing three community pools to save a couple million, not even that, to save 1.5 million a year. We 
don't hire a couple consultants and we've made that back. Yeah, that needs to be on the table. And I hope council takes the opportunity, you know, it's kind of good timing, right, with the auditor's report coming out at the same time as we're, we're getting into the budget discussions now. I hope they take the opportunity to have that conversation um, because we don't have a policy around this yet, right? And so with the police budget, we've got this policy, which in theory, you know, gives you more certainty over the, over the numbers. In theory, the policy tells you how much increases there, going, there is going to be in advance so that you've got that certainty. But it also removes the need to debate any of those increases. We're not there on consulting. So absolutely, I hope council tackles this issue in the context of the budget. There's the potential, I think, for some huge, huge savings. Well, speaking of the police budget, because again, you know, this is one of the issues to you. It happened this week that there was actually, I was impressed, some debate on uh, the police budget. Not the police budget itself, a tiny, tiny chunk, $4.6 million of it. The police, they're requesting, you know, $4.6 million for implementation of cannabis legalization, whatever that is. And we discussed how moderately unreasonable we find that. Fun fact on cannabis, there's $7.5 million in the budget for 2019, just on cannabis. And we saw the mayor push back on that this week. We had... uh, Taxpayers basically footing the bill for $4.6 million for EPS that they wanted for cannabis implementation costs. And the mayor said, quote, I'm going to suggest that we take that out. So he was actually saying, look, you, you don't get that money. Um, and I think that's a really positive way to talk about some policing, maybe not taking away money from the police. Maybe that's not what I'm suggesting, but at least having the discussion about it, because previously... There was no discussion. What the police wanted, the police got. Right. Or it seemed that way, certainly. Right. There was very, very little pushback on them to be more efficient or for them to find cost savings. I want to close this week with just an update from our friends from Austerity Edmonton. You sent me this press release and I'd be remiss not to mention it. We're talking about some of these budget increases that are already, quote unquote, on the books. So the Valley Line, Alley Renewal, Police, the sort of things that aren't necessarily approved because it needs a council vote. But, you know, they're as good as approved by this point. Right. And, you know, we had Iveson taking a hard line against Austerity Edmonton before saying, well, look, we're going to probably hold to inflation. That's going to be our target because, you know, the city's growing. Austerity Edmonton sent out this wonderful press release, which had some questionable math, but the bottom line in it was they said, we want zero tax increases. Even in the middle of this budget discussion, they're saying the only acceptable number to us is 0%, which I thought was a pretty tone deaf thing to do. Yeah. And they know that the budget deliberations, you know, basically start now and go for another month. We'll be sort of mid-December uh, at the latest, to have an approved budget. Um, so to go from 3.3% to zero has never happened in the history of budget discussions in Edmonton and probably anywhere. Uh, it's not going to happen. They're not going to get zero. So it's a bit odd that they would take such an extreme view as opposed to highlighting some of the key things that maybe they'd like to see council push back on um, to find some cuts to reduce that 3.3%. That seems way more realistic. Not to show any bias to the really both Prosperity Edmonton, I'll say their actual name, uh, and Thrive Yeg. We don't call them that, but they're PACs. That's what this is. And the provincial government this week, they 
banned corporate and union donations. So this sort of stuff, we're going to see more of this. Political action committees or organizations propping up and spending some money to lobby the government. I thought it was specifically interesting how, you know, Thrive has this discussion around we're collecting stories from concerned Edmontonians and we're presenting these stories to hope to influence uh, city council in, you know, helping these stories continue by providing city services. And we'll link the media release in the show notes, but Prosperity Edmonton sort of did that. They went through a couple small local businesses showing, you know, how their tax bills have risen over a period of time. And they actually gave the numbers that each business paid, which, you know, I was pretty surprised. Some of them are pretty high numbers. And like that was pretty effective on me that, oh, these businesses are actually paying a lot. Maybe I should listen to what Prosperity Edmonton has to say. And then they took the hardline fringe extremist view of, and we can spend no money on taxes this year. And they sort of lost me. Not, not to mention the questionable math in the first paragraph of the news release. Oh, yes. Uh, we will link that in the show notes. Please do give this a read, even if you don't agree with Prosperity Edmonton. It's a romping good read of just how disconnected organization like that can be with the actual implementation of budget from a city's perspective. I think that's all we have time for this week. There's been a lot this week and there's going to be a lot for a couple more weeks. Another thing that's coming up uh, is To and Out CFL podcast. They're doing a special recording during the Grey Cup week in Edmonton. Now, I've never watched a football game, but my research has told me that Grey Cup is some sort of footballing event and you can be part of the show. All proceeds are going to go to CFL fans fight cancer. So if you want to check out the live recording, we'll have a link in our show notes to the Eventbrite where you can get tickets for the live recording of the Two and Out CFL podcast. CFL standing for Canadian Football League. It's where Canadians play football. All things I learned on Wikipedia before the show. And that's it for this week. Uh, as always, we want you to check out taprootedmonton.ca for the latest and what up we're up to. Till next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're speaking, speaking municipally. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to cut another one. It's all good. <laughs> I think I'm going to leave that one in because just to show the difficulty of recording long distance.